0: If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. I've got Steve Oliver here with me. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I wonder if we could kick off by you just telling the listeners or sharing with the listeners a little bit about you know, what you do, what your day's like. Give them a picture of your life.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Anyway, bro, it's a pleasure. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we've run a pretty uh, hectic schedule. At the house, we've got uh, five kids that live with us. And, um, you know, we've obviously got the gym and we've, we run tournaments. We're running 13 tournaments this year around the country, uh, jiu-jitsu tournaments uh, that range, you know, the age ranges from – four years old right through to 60, you know, 64 years old. And yeah, it is, it's, uh, it's hectic. So we get up, you know, pretty early with the, uh, my youngest here is uh, three years old. So uh, it all revolves around her really. She's the rudder and she, uh, she's up pretty early and jumping on, uh, jumping on everybody, making sure that they get up and uh, then we're into it. And it's just, yeah, getting everybody organized for their day, uh, breakfasts and, And uh, me and my wife, well, you know, I'm not putting any delusions here. My wife does the majority of it. She's an absolute weapon. But uh, I'm up and I'm helping out with the kids' breakfast and doing what I can to get everybody organized and out the door. And uh, I I usually drop the two babies, uh, the three and four-year-old at kindy at nine. And then um, from there, we'll come back home and we'll start opening emails and getting on with our day and, you know, three days a week, two to three days a week, I'll head straight down to the gym and, and do a little bit of, uh, get about as much time as I get through the week to, uh, you know, help with my mental health and and physical health. So I go down there two to three days a week if I can. It's not always possible, but i try to go down there and do about 45 to an hour. Um, you know, just like work, I'm carrying some serious injuries, so I've just got to work around and do what I can, but just get the sweat up. And then... Then if I'm uh, if I've trained I'll come back, eat and then we're into it. And then we kick uh you know, pick the babies up at three o'clock and uh then we usually head straight to the gym. You know, my wife is quite often working reception, so she'll jump on reception and I'll start taking the kids classes. I take um you know, majority of the kids classes with a with a couple of uh good keen boys that help out down there and they, they start from four o'clock so uh, then from the kids' classes at six fifteen, the adult program starts. So I'll, um, you know, roll into the adults' program of jiu-jitsu or, or uh, kickboxing, whatever is, you know, beginner fundamental jiu-jitsu, whatever is on that day. And then uh, yeah, yeah, I'll try and get out of there. I'll try and get out of there after the first class from six some six fifteen to around uh, seven fifteen. I'll try and hand it over. Or you know, on my I, I, there's two or three nights where I go right through to eight forty-five, and then we we'll tie the up, lock up, come home, and and if my wife's working on reception, all the kids are. It's a late one, you know, so everyone's scrambling, trying to feed them, and trying to you know trying to settle them down for for bedtime, you know. So um, and then we just basically pass out, and then we uh, hit the replay button. Right, nearly the next day, you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's action packed, but uh, oh, it's you know, I mean, it's a great time with the kids, eh? The kids, it's a beautiful age. These kids, uh, like I said, the youngest are three, and the other one's four, and then we've got uh, Mia, she's six. We've got uh, Van, he's ten, and we've got Charlie, she's uh, fourteen. So it's a good spread, and uh, you know, the older kids, Charlie helps out a lot with babies, and that's uh, a really good dynamic, and. Yeah, it's, that's that's our life, mate, in a nutshell. That sounds
0: pretty full on, Steve, and also very full of not just busy full, but full of the kids, the family. You guys sound like you're running the classic mom and pop business. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I start, you know, it's not, to be honest, I'm 52 now. You know, there's um, there's a challenge with the kids, you know, to, uh, I've got a younger, you know, there's obviously younger boys coming through that I, Get to help out once in a while, you know, with the kids' classes, but I really find, that, you know, feel it's important time for me to be on the on the mats with the kids because my kids are a part of the, part of the kids' program. You know what I mean? So that's you know that's a big part of our time together is on the mats. You know, teaching okay. them just basic fundamental skills and life lessons.
0: Yeah, I'm very interested in that last bit you just said about life lessons. But before we go there, what about um, t- just tell the listeners who may not know what's your gym called and whereabouts are you?
1: I mean, my father was Don Oliver, so he he started. Well, you know, my grandfather had a you know run run just boxing classes out of his house, but then my dad opened a commercial gym in the '60s and. um like I said, he's, he's been dead almost 30 years and I, I shot off overseas and spent probably 20, best of 20 years overseas just uh, acquiring the knowledge to, you know, to give back to the community. That was always the goal was to come back and open a gym and, and to give back because, I, you know, I really valued those days when I was young. I was born and raised in the gym and, you know, on on the gym premises, basically, that's I'd come home from school and I'd stay on the gym, in the gym till bedtime, you know. Um, And that's really where I learned most of my life skills was in the gym, you know, looking up to different role models that were, you know, uh, beautifully placed in my life. And it didn't, you know, they didn't have to be big. uh, They didn't have to be there a long time to uh, inspire me, you know, as a kid, I'd see you know at five years old i was on the gym floor if i saw a you know kid come through that was six or seven and he seemed to have more discipline i'd try and emulate that you know even if he was there one day you know and then because i felt a responsibility of you know being part of the i felt like i was part of the gym you know the my dad ran it so it was my responsibility to to do the best i could so i was always trying to emulate my dad was bringing you know i mean he was an olympic lifter uh went to four olympics and he was a trainer for a couple of olympics too the what the national team trainer so we had olympic you know level lifters coming through the gym all the time and you know i, rem- I just remember s- smelling liniment and, and you know mm. chalk everywhere and these big monsters would come in and hurl up uh you know gargantuan weights and dropping the weights and it was just yeah it was uh pretty inspiring as a young man, you know, to see that and I just try and do my bit as I progress through the ranks. And that's what I tried to do with uh I tried to simulate that with um with our program, you know, and uh just giving kids a safe place to be, to to grow up and to to give them dreams, you know, to aspire to being a world champion or being a successful athlete. You know, So, uh, yeah, that's that was my motivation and so I went off overseas and, and done my bit over there, came back and then opened up the gym. So we're Oliver MMA, just, you know, it's not Don Oliver's anymore, it's just straight Oliver MMA and we're based, our headquarters is based out West Auckland, but we've got a, a few branches around the place. Uh, my father opened a gym with a good friend of his, Ellen Henson, in, uh, in Wellington early in the days and uh, I became like brothers with his his son, uh, Eugene Hinson. And Eugene, they were great wrestlers. You know, just I don't think Eugene's ever lost a wrestling match. So um, we've continued that relationship. So uh, we run an Oliver MMA out of his uh, gym down in Wellington. And we've got a branch out um, South Auckland. We've also got one in Browns Bay and got one down in Napier. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it was just... Being, I started quite early in the. As far as jujitsu, jujitsu was my focus. I started lifting. You know, I was just put into that environments where lifting heavy weights was an expression of just uh, achievement. So it was all focused on lifting weights until I was, you know. But I wrestled, and also my dad, my father, my grandfather was a boxing, was a boxer. So we always, you know, were throwing hands around and wrestling and stuff. But uh Lifting was my real focus until I hit my um, early twenties, and then I shot off when my father died. I shot off overseas and, and done ten years in the states, wrestling and doing uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So I just felt like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was was you know the best skill set. And it's—I still believe it is. I think there's no self-defense that comes close to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as far as effectiveness and reality-based techniques. So uh, yeah, I, I specialize in uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and brought that home. And now we've got a great program. You know, we mix it all up. We've got weights, we've got Jiu-Jitsu. You know, for young and old. We've got kickboxing. We've got uh, wrestling. And we've got, uh, we, we all mix it up, mixed martial arts. So we, we've got a, a great program of mixed martial arts and, and, and some good fighters coming through there too. So.
0: Well, you didn't do so badly yourself as a competitor, I believe. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I just got in early and I had a good base. You know, I mean, uh, it's evolved over the last 20 to 30 years, the whole, you know, because it's gone mainstream. It's been a lot of lessons learned. And um, now, after, you know, working it out, you know, it's really. Uh, the best possible base is a strength and fitness base in wrestling. So I I wrestled from a young age and I obviously was in the gym lifting weights and had a great strength uh, base uh, coming into the sport, which was just, you know, just the way it was. But, um, yeah, I did well um, because of, uh, you know, the the work that I'd done beforehand. It put me in good stead. Well, I think you were world champion, weren't you? I, I won a couple of world titles, just some different stuff. Um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, is uh, IBJJF, it's a uh, brown belt, and I was um, Pankration World Champion. It's like a um, type of, uh, you know, combative sort of mixed martial arts. It's a little bit different to, you know, the modern version of mixed martial arts, but it was along the same lines. So, uh, yeah, I jumped into a couple of those and done okay. i done it, you know, done... Good at uh, at lifting. Also, I went to like three world championships as a lifter, under twenty three years old, and I was the first junior ever to um, take a medal as a, um, in a in a world championship. So, yeah, I done, you know I did I I done okay. I mean, there wasn't a lot of opportunities, but we you know we did what we could, and you know, there's just not the exposure or the the connection with the internet and, you know knowing what was happening everywhere. It just wasn't available, so. Yeah, we uh, we done all right, you know, for what, for what we had and the opportunities we've given.
0: You are listening to real people in the psychotherapist chair. And today I'm talking to Steve Oliver of Oliver MMA Gyms. I'm thinking that you mentioned earlier about it's more than just physical prowess. The, the, what you're talking about is, you know, what I'm hearing anyway is that for you there was discipline and there were there's a kind of life skills going on here that what you do at your gym would you describe it as purely physical or would you say there's other stuff that's going on in your gym
1: oh 100% it's not just physical you know i mean like i to be honest um you know just the way uh with weights and that it's quite uh isolated and um at a young age you know Twenty years old, I was one of the strongest at that age in the world, and uh, of real arrogance. You know, I had a real arrogance. I just thought if you, you know, to be honest, my mindset was if you couldn't bench press two hundred kilos, you weren't worth talking to. Yeah, <laughs> 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 uh, I, I was. I was arrogant, mate. There's no two ways about it. And um, and I mean, to, to be a champion, you'd need a slight. Like, you know, honestly, the more I see. Uh, you know, high performance sport and the, you know the elite sportsman I just it almost puts me off. You know, what I mean, um, just you need a, definitely need arrogance and a belief in yourself to be a champion. But it's very very rare to get someone that's got a, a good balance. You know, what I mean, they usually. And you know, that was my focus in life was to be the world champion. You know, a world champion lifter, world champion judo, MMA. I that was my whole purpose in life and. uh I was quite self-centered and and with with the lifting became very arrogant and, um, and I needed, you know, it was just well-placed where I needed to, I went to the best gyms in the world for, for jujitsu and, you know, that's what I needed in my life. I needed to be humbled and that's what jujitsu does. It just brings you down. It doesn't matter how big the guy is. You know, my first experience was when I went overseas, I... I jumped on the mats and um, I went to a, a gym with uh, Hickson Gracie. I didn't really know who Hickson was. He was just one of these Gracies that uh, had done well, but he was the champion of the family and, and the champ- and, and the family was the best in the world. So I was effectively at the best gym in the world and we were getting uh, Olympic champion judo you know, practitioners coming through. We are getting the best of the best coming through, world champion wrestlers. And uh, I turned up there and I got um, partnered up with a, i was probably 125 kilos lean at that stage and uh just coming from lifting i hadn't really had the years to shed you know it's just a natural thing where you shed the muscle you know um to be more effective you know more efficient but i hadn't had those years so i just jumped in against a guy that was probably about 75 80 kilos and i thought that i'd make short work of him but he basically dislocated both arms he popped one arm and i just thought well, that it must be an accident and that's not going to happen and then he just uh he, he done the other arm so it was my first experience uh pretty much one of my first roles and that was henry Aikens. he became a, a lifelong friend he's actually godfather to my daughter so uh i sat out and i just watched classes for about six weeks because i was effectively had but like two broken arms so uh i just kept coming along to class and they all thought that i was an undercover cop and um so I wasn't well received, you know, to the club. And uh, I just kept turning up. And then one day I just said to the guys, guys, you know, because it was only 42 cents and a dollar back then. So every class that was $20 was effectively $50 New Zealand. So I was going through money and I said to the guys, hey, if there's any work, you know, let me know. And I knew that Henry, the one that had done the damage to my arms, run a, um, he runs security. So, you know, a few weeks went by and he says, hey, we've had a couple of guys pull out. Do you want to work tonight? So I was like, yeah, put me in, and and that night ended up being the, you know, I worked with Henry over 10 years, and that was the that was the night, you know, that was the worst night I'd ever seen, you know, and, and to this day, that was probably one of the worst nights. It was just, it was a punk gig, and uh, these guys were just running mosh pits, and it was just out of control, and uh, we were just active, to, to put it mildly, all night, you know, and uh, Halfway through the night, I was just covered in blood. There was just blood everywhere. And uh, the guys just said, "Mate, if you ever want a job, you've got a job with us. You know. So from that night onwards, I was we were tight with Henry. Every time I went over, I had a job. And, yeah, uh, you know, there's some of the best experiences of my life. Uh, in L.A., working security and a really special part of my life, you know.
0: What a warrior lifestyle you had. And it goes all the way back to your granddad, is that right?
1: Yeah, he was a um, he was only small Irishman. Um, my grandmother was uh, was Welsh and Scottish, and she was because my family is quite big. I'm actually one of the smallest of the family. My uh, cousins are, are much bigger than me, and my dad was you know he was a big unit, and that's where the size comes from through my grandmother. My my grandfather was actually quite tiny. But yeah, he was he was uh, right into boxing and and sport and stuff. So he passed that on to his sons, and all my uncles have uh, just this real vein of uh, uh, of discipline. You know, mo- to put it mildly, it's almost borders on uh, you know mental illness the way that we take discipline in in sport. You know, my my father was uh, took it to all levels and 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 lifting. His brother, that's actually you know structurally. Put, bigger than he was was a marathon runner and run you know well, you know uh, New Zealand record times and marathons and and he was a, a big man but obviously you know for the running he muscle wise didn't carry much muscle but he was just a, a big structurally big big man and then his other brother was uh international golfer and then another brother was a uh, international tennis player so they all picked different sports but they all done very well in there in you know, disciplines. And um, so, yeah, there is a vein of uh, just, I don't know, they just really pick something and get it in their teeth and just uh, won't let it go, you know. So, um, yeah, I think that comes through from my from my, from my grandfather, but the size comes from my grandmother, yeah. mean love.
0: But, you know, in all of this, there's something different about you i mean i don't know your relatives and i'm you know i don't I can't say what kind of people they were but what you portray is a you know tough world a world of discipline a world of um physical prowess and and yet with you as i'm talking with you i get this sense that it's about a lot more than that for you am i right or am i fishing off a false side of the jetty
1: uh, 100% i think uh I think sport's just a tool, you know, looking back on it, you know, now I'm, I'm you know, seen a few years, so I'm just looking back on, and sport should be used as a tool, and it's to, a tool to produce quality humans, you know, I mean, that's that's where the process should lead somebody. At the end of the day, that's all we've got, who we are, you know, medals, I remember going underneath the house at, 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 our, at our house back home and just seeing dad's Olympic records and you know, Olympic medals and gold medals, all just on the floor, smashed. You know, certificates smashed on the floor, and I'd just go up with a piece of glass and, and a certi- half a certificate and say, "Dad, here's all your stuff." He's like, I know I won it. You know, I just—it's meaningless to me." You know, and that's honestly, once you have achieve something, it just—you know—I've seen Mark. I've seen the best guys in the world, Mark Hunt. I dreamed with Mark for many years, and and he's got belts, and he just—you know—they just. You know, they're just in the corner, just dust, and it just you know, people think that that's the end goal, is to win a world title. But it's just, it should be just used as a tool to produce good people. You know, what I mean, and it, uh, it's a great experience. But then, you know, life, night and day, rolls over, and then life goes on, and it's just a, it's just a memory, and it's just your memory. I mean, people might remember that you've done it, but but just the lack of luster, and the, you know, just fades with time and it's yeah like I said it's just the jiu-jitsu was a real important part of my journey because it it humbled me you know I spent years and the, and the thing is i I get a lot of people making comments now you know uh for my size they just say, man for your size you're super um, technical I know why because I was asthmatic growing up i was uh yeah had quite nasty quite serious uh asthma. And, uh, you know, I was strong. I was strong first phase. You know, first two minutes, I could just bench press people off and I wouldn't have to worry about too much technical ability. But after two minutes, I was basically dying under there, you know. And when Jiu Jitsu first came out, it was a real tough environment. There's no just walking off the mat or asking coach for time out. I mean, you would have been just seen the door, you know, would have been, yeah. Toilet break, but just don't bother coming back, you know. So I was effectively having an asthma attack under some of the biggest, baddest units on the planet for hours. For the for, for the first first three four years, I was just learning how not to die. You know, what I mean, I was having a full blown asthma attack and and having these guys dropping serious pressure on top, and you know, it was just how do I work out how not to suffocate to death in the next. 10 seconds, you know, okay. If I get on my side, I can survive a little bit longer, okay. If I pull my elbow into my side, I can get a little bit more to my side because if I'm flat with his body weight straight down on my chest, if I'm lying on the ground, if I'm flat with his body weight straight down my chest, my lungs are inhibited, so I can't, you know, they can't inflate and deflate. But if I can get on my side, my, uh, you know, the bone structure of my rib cage will support my lungs, so I can actually, you know, start breathe a little bit, a little bit more effectively, but efficiently. But it's definitely not uh, good times, you know. And so it took me a long time just to not to learn how to not die in class, and then then you start, okay, if I can get on my side, if I can swim my arm, if I can get my arm underneath, and you know, then I'm starting to get some good times, you know. And then a couple of years went by, and then I'm starting to You know, not only not die. I'm now. I'm having. I'm getting on top, and I'm having my way with these guys a little bit. You know, and it was a real slow process because I was battling asthma, and you know, the the teaching techniques at the time was not too much technical ability. It was just get in there and just just get amongst it, and um, that's definitely what happened. But uh, you know, just through persistence, it wasn't through any you know any uh, special gift that I had. You know, it was just through uh, just persistence that I stayed and and learned how to deal with these uh, challenges, you know. But it was the humility. That's what, you know, you don't know what horsepower someone can have by looking at them. I used to I used to pride myself on, because I was a German instructor, I used to pride myself on knowing specific physical attributes just by looking at someone, I'd say, okay, he'll have a good squad, he'll have a good bench or he won't be fit or whatever. Jiu Jitsu just threw that whole perception out the window it doesn't matter mate. Yeah. No. like mark Mark hunt you just think that guy was slow and be unfit well you couldn't make a worse mistake you know if you're facing the man in the cage because he's super quick and the, the guy's got a fuel tank that you've, you you would not even understand you know what i mean it's just unbelievable and just people that's where special people you know these guys are special people that they've got special attributes that uh you know that's why they perform to a really, really high level. And and the thing with Mark is he's almost in costume. You know he's in this costume that looks like it's not going to perform. But then at the end of the day, when he puts it, you know, when he pulls the trigger, by the time you work out it's a costume, you're always, you know, usually picking yourself up off the floor. <laughs> so. Uh...
0: But by, by costume, you don't mean he's actually wearing a costume. You mean his body is the costume.
1: Yeah. Yeah, like he walks in there and he looks like he's out of shape and he looks like he's unfit and and slow. But uh, it couldn't be further from the truth.
0: You are listening to real people in the psychotherapist chair. And today I'm talking to Steve Oliver of Oliver MMA Gyms. Uh, Do you know, it's so interesting hearing you talk about you going through asthma with some guy sitting on top of you and not being able to breathe. I mean, how long did the asthma last? Did it finally leave you? What What happened to the asthma?
1: I was such a bad asthmatic that even if I used to eat inhalers, you know, weekly, and, and what half it was because I got so big, I got up to 145 kilos at one stage at, when I was about 21 uh, or 22, um, just, you know, Ninety-five percent of it was muscle, but it got to a point where I could actually, you know, I'd spend my whole life lifting and eating, and, and my body started to know what it's what it was there for, you know. So it really got efficient at making muscle, and I was just getting bigger. And I knew, you know, I would had asthma, so it was it was starting at the end of my uh, lift, you know junior lifting career at twenty two. I was I knew I had to make a change because it wasn't healthy. I was you know, breathing hard, you know, just going up a set of stairs. So my fitness level was non-existent, but my, you know, lifting weights, fives and under, I was unstoppable. If I could get, I felt like if I could get under, you know, if I could get the right position under a weight, I'd lift anything, you know. And that was part of the the psychological, you know, part part of the lifting because a, a good lifter never fails, you know. In training, you should get to a point where you can, you know, you're always pushing yourself, but you're predicting your weights to a, certain, to a really high degree so that you never fail in practice. You know, you come very, very close, but you never fail. So in the end, you walk into a tournament, you don't, just don't believe that you can fail. You know? So, um, you know, it is a psychological thing. It's physical and psychological. It's, you know, they go together, you know, and then psychological is huge.
0: What's a five? You said fives or under. What does that? Is that five different weights on the bar?
1: Five reps, five repetitions. Ah, right. So, so when I, you're
0: under five, you're doing bigger weights. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. When you go fives and under, it's you're getting up to the top of you know. You're getting into. Um, I used to get more nervous uh, doing threes and under. You know, three reps and under on bench, squat, and deadlift. Than I used to getting into a cage. I just felt. It was deadly, you know? I, you know. When I was getting to a point where I was get, uh, taking a squat, you know, the squat is obviously where you're standing up and you take the weight and you step back and, and bend your knees, go all the way down, and all, you know, at least the parallel and back up. But I'd, I'd take the weight, step off, and I'd feel my shins bowing underneath my calves. I felt I felt like this can go at any second, you know, and it's not going to be pretty. And it, it has. There's been lifters that just step off with the weight and they've had a stress fracture in their whole – their legs just break underneath them, you know what I mean. And and bench press, I'd I'd lie down. You'd take the weight, and when you sit that weight, you know, you sit at arms length on the weight. I'd feel the bones underneath my biceps bowing. You know, like you just know that you're pushing the limits, and at any second, this thing could could go. You know, but it's um it's another thing that you train your mind to, and 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 uh, there's no there can be not one or a point. percent of doubt you know i mean you've got to meet the challenge head on and and push through you know you've got to actually break through the challenge if you you know same as a rugby tackle or same if you don't go in with full commitment you're gonna pay the price and it's the same with heavy lifting the same with anything in sport you've got to go in fully committed because you're the only one that can actually pull it off you know everyone else doesn't believe that you can do it but you're the only one that can believe so you can do it you know so, uh, so the, asthma, yeah.
0: the asthma never went away then, Steve? Not for a long time.
1: No, I, I I got to a point where even if I didn't have an inhaler on me, I'd have an asthma attack. You know, there was many nights where I'd wake up in the middle of the night to just go to the toilet, and I realised, where's my inhaler? And I'd end up just destroying, like, the house, pulling the stove out, you know, just cupboards out, looking for an inhaler, having an attack. You know, um, yeah, it was a real. I was really psychologically attached to the. I had, you know, when I was young, I went to the hospital many times for pneumonia and and serious asthma attacks. And, and there wasn't. I remember just spending nights. You know, they, the treatment back in my day was they'd run a hot kettle. You know, you you'd put a kettle on in the night and you'd steam up the room. To be honest, I think I don't think you could do anything worse, mate. You know, when I went to the states, I got. um a relief from my asthma for some reason, all the smog and all the pollution and all the so-called you know bad elements over there, as far as air um, quality, I'd have, you know, my asthma was actually better over there than it was here. I think it was part of it was the humidity, you know. And I spent numerous nights up, you know, basically suffocating for hours and hours on end with a bloody kettle and this mist in the room so thick and everything damp and that trying to breathe and oh torture, you know, and uh, there was no quick fixes when I was young as far as asthma, you know, these days, I mean, you've got the nebulizers and stuff that really give you quick relief, but I can't remember having a nebulizer until later on, you know, but uh, when I was real young, so, yeah, asthma was a real issue in my life, and, um, you know, but uh, I did, I grew out of it in the end, I pushed my lungs to such a point where they had to develop. You know, to to deal with you know the load that I was asking from you know, so I was every day we were rolling hours and hours on end. So it was it wasn't didn't happen straight away. I started jujitsu when I was twenty two, and I I uh, didn't really grow out of the asthma until probably early thirties, you know, mid thirties. Mm.
0: Wow! And when you talk about we were rolling, you you mean rolling on the mat, right?
1: Yeah, that's what they call sparring—is rolling. You know, they roll. Yeah. And, you know, they wrestle to the ground, and then you roll around on the ground. They just, you know, they just basically just call it a roll. You know,
0: my only training in martial arts is watching Karate Kid.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's where it. Was everyone's experience with Bruce Lee, and that's that's where the MMA, you know, the the sport of MMA has evolved. Just the reality base. Arts, you know, everybody knows karate. This is one of two strikes in there, they're their reality based, but a lot of it's just it is an art. Yeah. You know, it's not a martial skill as such, it's an art, you know.
0: My son has taken up jujitsu in the last few years. Then I went down to uh, my first ever jiu-jitsu tournament just a month ago down here in Wanaka. And I was absolutely amazed because, obviously, you know, I'm not a martial arts guy, but I I've spent my life doing bodywork, massage, and stuff, as well as being a psychotherapist. But what was interesting for me was how real it all was. Uh, I'd never thought about um, the situation of a of a combat, someone needing to, as it were, take someone down and disable them. And watching the tournament of jiu-jitsu was just amazing to me. It was like the technical skill in maneuvering and moving your body and knowing where the other fighters' body were. It was just quite incredible to me to see the power of close contact uh, uh, technique. It was really very impressive to me.
1: The technical side of jiu-jitsu, it's unbelievable. You know, people have no idea the complexity, you know, complexity of, of of the art. And, you know, before the internet, people would spend their lifetime doing, uh, you know, because the martial art, the, the, you know, jiu-jitsu came from the samurai. When he would use, lose his sword, that was the samurai's martial art of combat. You know, he would uh, put someone down and uh either choke or joint you know manipulate the joint so he couldn't defend the choke and then and then the choke you know so uh that's where it evolved from and and people would spend you know isolated people and villagers would spend their whole lifetime and they would develop one move you know and a a lot of these moves are called after different people that develop them you know kimura you know a man called kimura you know was really famous for this, this kimura move and it's like a key lock onto your arm and and these guys have spend lifetimes just developing one or two moves. With now, with the power of the internet, you know, lifetimes worth of work. You 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 learn that in one session. You learn three or four different moves that spent you know that people de- devoted their lives to in uh, in a beginner fundamental class in the first night. You know, and and jujitsu is a type of technique that if someone approached you on the street, it's so. Fundamentally, the concept so easy and simple that you'll pull it off straight away. And and the thing is, people just just the power of, of understanding what's a good and bad position. A lot of people don't even know what a good and bad position mm-hmm. is on the on the ground, you know. And the perception is, well, a lot of strikers, you know, a lot of kickboxers and boxers, they get this false sense of security around. Oh, nobody's ever going to get in on me and put me down. The only reason they have that perception is because they spar other boxers and other kickboxers that don't want to come in and put them down. So the other boxer wants to stay at arm's length. If you're a boxer, you want to stay at arm's length. So you stay at arm's length and, and play this play this game of let's hit each other at arm's length, same as kickboxing. But as soon as you get a wrestler that doesn't want to play at that distance, they cannot fathom how easy it is to get in and to put – Put you down, you know it's unbelievable, and that's where the sport, you know, that's where the the power of jiu-jitsu is. It's so easy to put people down. I mean, you've I've got to come in. As I come in, you've got to pop off your most lethal shot at the perfect time to knock me out. And if you don't, it's over for you because once I'm in, you've got nothing. Once my chest is on your chest, as far as a striker, your horsepower is is gone. You know, you can't generate any horsepower with me being that close. And once I'm that close, I have your hips, so I can just go double unders. I get my arms under your arms. Well, there's there's numerous techniques, but the most common one is just I get my arms underneath your arms, I control your hips, and I just lie you down, you know, and they just cannot believe it's happening. <laughs> it's uh, it is it's a real life experience for a lot of people. And once they once they feel how exposed they are, and when they're on the ground. Jiu-jitsu is just designed to to use your instincts against you. As soon as you, if I'm on the ground and you're on top of me sitting on my chest or whatever, if I try and punch you, if I try and push you off, that's exactly what you're going to do. And as soon as you extend an arm, you get it broken. So that's one instinct. You're going to try and push away. As soon as you extend your arm, I extend it properly. And then... Another thing is if they eat one or two punches in the face, they're gonna instinctively go belly down and they're gonna try and stand up. As soon as someone spins underneath to their belly, they've exposed their back to me. So they can't see what I'm doing for a starter, and that's all I do is choke them. They choke them, you know, put an arm around your neck and that's that's the last thing you see is the gravel as you go to sleep. Yeah, it's, it's so perfect and, and it's so precise, Jiu-Jitsu, it's unbelievable, the scientific part of it, you know, and that, and that you know, after the Second World War, the Jiu-Jitsu, uh, it was dying out actually, Jiu-Jitsu was dying out because uh, the Japanese would only teach people that were worthy, you know, if you're a good student, you know, a good academic student or you're a good good son or whatever, then you're worthy enough to learn Jiu-Jitsu. But the problem is that the guys that were worthy weren't interested. So jiu-jitsu was actually starting to die out, jiu in uh, Japan. But there was a guy named Count Koma that actually moved to uh, Brazil. And he was a top player as far as, you know, full contact jiu-jitsu. And, and he got resonance uh, through a politician in Brazil and uh, named Gracie. And as a gift, he taught all his sons jiu-jitsu. And in Brazil, it wasn't a, you know, a, a hierarchy thing. You could, If you were keen to train, they would let you train. So it exploded in Brazil, absolutely exploded in Brazil. And the death of Jiu-Jitsu in, in Japan was actually after the Second World War, the Europeans came in and the Japanese were just paranoid about the Europeans getting a hold of the, you know, the real powerful killing art on the ground. So what they did is they separated the standing art, which they called judo, and the uh, hidden art, which was jiu jitsu, they took that out. So they just said, let's let the Europeans focus on the judo and we'll keep the, the killing secrets to ourselves. But yeah, the, it went to Brazil and exploded in Brazil. That's why they call it. And, and Brazilians just, it evolved at a rate of knots over in Brazil because they let so many people have, uh, you know, train almost become their national sport and the technical. Uh, you know, just the technical prowess of the, the art just went to a whole nother level. That's why they call it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu now.
0: That's why they call it what
1: Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu.
0: Is it a separate thing?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's almost a, you know, to a higher degree. You know, to Jiu- Jiu-Jitsu to a higher technical degree. But now it's gone global, and it's everybody's got it, and everybody's adding to it. And it's yeah, it's it's amazing. Every every possible scenario on the ground you know like boxing might be one let's call it two two positions to be generous jiu jitsu it might be 40 positions equally as technical in every position you know so you just can't compete you know i mean you're you, you know a boxer might be great at at his one position but all I got to do is get in on the perfect timing put him down and then the guy's absolutely lost you know i mean it's in uh, and, and with the technical dominance on the ground it just makes short work of people it really does
0: you are listening to real people in the psychotherapist chair and today i'm talking to steve oliver of oliver mma gyms well what an amazing uh journey through the history of jiu-jitsu i never knew that it came so close to dying out and that the Japanese were wanting to keep it a secret because of its power. That's a really, that's a really, um, well, what is that? Well, that's a really powerful story that
1: is. Yeah. Just amazing how it's come through, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, like you said, the transformation of your son, that's, it, that's generic, you know, that happens so many times. I see kids coming in, they've got no confidence, mate. And and jujitsu just gives confidence and, and you know, especially when they start competing you know they don't have to win, but they just walk that line of doubt and in in conquering that achievement of hand to hand combat. There's no bigger there's no bigger challenge really. I mean, in a, and especially in a kid's life, you know, it feels like they walk into their doom. You know, you know, just a, I see kids mature overnight. You know, and get humbled, and they just turn into great kids. You know, uh, yeah. and that confidence spills right through their whole life. It just permeates everything. Permeates their academic. I see kids that are horrible at school, come to jiu-jitsu, you know, struggle on a few tournaments, maybe even win a couple of tournaments. Next month, their parents are coming back and just saying, mate, it's night and day. My kid's achieving at school, you know. It's because they believe they can achieve. They believe in themselves, you know. That's key with kids, you know. And you can learn it at any age, right? Yeah, you know, we start our kids at uh, four years old. Could I start learning it? 100%. We start, you know, we, we've got a, a fundamental program, And and, uh, any age, and we've got 60-plus-year-olds in there, and you don't have to be a gymnast to to learn these techniques. You know, a lot of uh, the pathway for a lot of people is they bring their kids in and they sit on the sideline they see how effective and how simple the techniques are, and next minute the parents are involved. That's how it happens. And the sparring, I mean, I couldn't, if I had a kickbox spar, I could only do that once a week at my age, you know, because you get banged up and... But with jujitsu, you can pretty much roll every day. You know what I mean? And if you get caught into a, a, a situation like – it's a submission. It's a submission art. So I submit. So I tap. For me to give up is I either say, yep, give up, or I tap. I just tap him and he'll let go. So there's a really good understanding within the within the team that, you know, as soon as you tap, you let go, and then you move on better for the experience. And that's that's why it's so humbling. You know I mean? You get tapped. You can't say – Basically, when someone's twisting your arm up your back or you, you can't breathe, you've got to basically say to that human, please let me go, you know. And you you say, please let me go hundreds of thousands of times over your career. You just can't have an ego when you've had to uh, beg people to let you go that many times. And I see that, you know, I see the difference between striking arts, guys that perform in the striking art, and guys in a submission art, you know, jiu I just see the difference in, in – Humility is huge. You know, the submission art guys just got no ego. They don't care who, you know, they can be the best in the world and they're just the most, you know, epic guys. They don't care. They don't care who you are. They're just decent people, you know, in general. It's not, you know, it's not always the case, but, you know, 90% of the time it's uh, that, that's how it is. But with strikers, I, you know, because we've seen it, you know, through Pride and UFC and it strikers that are the predominantly strikers, are quite, you know, arrogant
0: now you're talking about my territory really which is the territory of the ego the territory of how we can do damage to ourselves and to other people through not having proper control or understanding or awareness of of our ego of our of our kind of impulses and i know steve that you you had to stand up for what you do um, in fact you stood up almost alone uh, in just a very few other people around New Zealand, when the government mandates came in and businesses were supposed to shut, you you refused. Could you tell a little bit about what happened there? Because I don't know your full story on this, but I I heard rumours, but I don't know what you did and what because it sounded to me like you you had to stand up and not be put down.
1: Well, you know, I mean, like, I, I believe I'm continuing on a legacy of my father here, you know what I mean, uh, intergenerational legacy of just contributing and trying to help community. And um, COVID came along, I, as everybody did, didn't know, you know, never hurt, never seen anything like this, you know, and it swept the world. And, you know, we did, we stocked up with food and sat around for a couple of weeks and but I've got a great network internationally, and I was just always, what do you think, you know, asking guys around the around the world, what do you think, what do you think, you know, like just keeping it real, really, you know, not just relying on the news for my information, you know, not relying on that one source of uh, irrefutable truth, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, people were just saying, man, you know, what's happening on TV, and and, and we started to see it, you know. So everyone's dying of this stuff, and I was just looking around my streets and my my networks, and I know a lot of people, and it just wasn't true. It just wasn't ringing true, you know. You you're saying one thing, and and it's absolutely something else is happening. So from early days, it wasn't ringing true, and it dragged on, and we just were over it, you know. You know, we by that stage, you know, what into the second, third lockdown. I mean, first lockdown we might have done our bit, and But we weren't being exposed on any level to the so-called death virus. You know, I just wasn't seeing it. So we were just like, nah. In our reality, uh, you know, contact is more important than this nonsense. You know, of not being able to see my family. No way. You know, there's just no way. So we just started to just really... Uh, come down on the priority list pretty quickly and then uh as it was coming down on our priority list you'd think that you know it, it would have happened to the same as far as the government they would have been putting the pieces together and you know working out the same coming to the same uh conclusions but they weren't they were escalating it everything was escalating and i was on our scale of things it was de-escalating <laughs> and uh you know we just pretty much were laughing at it by the time they were really kicking off into high gear and uh, then they said, you know, Jacinda was saying, oh, we're never, you know, we'll never mandate it and, uh, you know, which was making me nervous because he'd start talking those things, you know, it's pretty much, it's an option. So next minute I remember, I didn't really listen to the to the updates, I didn't interest me and, you know, I just didn't want to, that lady was really uh, quite nauseating to be honest in the end, you know, the team of five million and just really playing to the community and trying to put this perception of a caring, adoring sort of uh, leader where she was just, you know, you could just see straight through it. But anyway, one uh, news brief that came over and she just says, now we're mandating gyms where you can't open a gym unless you're vaccinated. And honestly, man, i I've got a pretty strong stomach. And uh, I was I was physically sick, man, like when I heard that, you know. It's one it's the only time in my life that I've had a physical response from you know hearing something like that so and uh I just thought straight away well this, you guys got you got an issue now because there's no way this lady that's got about you know you can see that she's never been in a gym maybe I, I don't even know if she's done a burpee in her life or you know probably quarter of a game of netball and had to sit out you know what I mean or she's been pulled off because she's t- so useless you know that's tell me that that after bleeding you know for 20 years for you know my whole life that now you're going to tell me i can't run a gym there's just no way it's not happening and my mum was alive at the time and i run it past her and just said what do you think because this could be the end of it right this is not my you know just my legacy this is my mother's you know she she knew you know i wasn't obviously in in tune with how my father would have thought. And she just gave me my, her blessing and just says, man, we're here for the community. And you do, you know, if this is the hill that we, the whole business goes under on, we're happy to die here, you know? So I was like, well, that's all I need. So we're not clothing. You guys can call the cops, you can do whatever you want, but you're gonna have to take me out in handcuffs because there's just no way you're taking that right, stripping that right from me of, uh, giving back to the community and just having a, a place where the community is a, a safe place. It's, you know, it's uh, a hub for the community. So, yeah, that's what happened. And, um, they you know, they had they, they came out, the cops came out, and they were quite uh, – I just thought, man, what, what's going to happen? We're going to get raided. I'm going to get locked up. We're going to have a few fines, and I'm going to just go into bankruptcy. I, I 100% thought that this was for the end. But the cops came down, and they were actually on my side, you know, they were quite good and they said, hey, I 100% I'm i feeling you, but uh, this is what's happening. So they were okay, but then WorkSafe came down and it was just comical. These guys look like they've crawled out from underneath some bed space. I don't think they've ever seen a, a ray of sunlight, you know, definitely not natural sunlight in their life. Uh, Looks like he had been on, you know, every kind of chemo that you could possibly get in you at one time. Not a not one hair. I don't even know if he had any in his eyebrows. This guy looked like the absolute epitome of death walking. And he had about five masks on. I don't know why. Bro, you're almost at death's door. Why would you smother yourself? Like at least you're going if you're gonna die, at least die breathing. You know, he's like got all these masks on and he comes to the door and he's trying to tell me I'm a danger to the community. I was just like, like I mean, I've got kids that coming in here that have been how disgusting! I don't, these guys, I don't know how the sports, these sports that fucking towed the line. I don't know how they sleep with themselves, mate. You know, I now all our kids have got to have a needle in them before they can come and play sport. What a fucking disgrace! Honestly, I just I can't even believe that they they did that to the kids. You know, and uh, so we had kids that were, you know, seriously depressed. You know, not coming out of their rooms, not eating, suicidal. You know, uh, all kinds, uh, and their parents. You know, would be at reception crying with my 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 wife, and then I'd be in teaching the kids on the, and we took it away because we are. You know, like I said, it's a very technical martial art, and it, it is. There's a lot of. You know, it is. You've got to really pay attention, but we took it right away. We just were having fun with the kids, really, through that time, teaching them one or two things, but really, it was all about just coming together as a community and just. Having a little bit of contact, you know, and the kids were loving it. And uh, yeah, they're trying to shut us down. We had instances where they set us up and they're trying to trying to G us up. And the, the car park next door was full of car full of cop cars waiting for me to pop off so they could come in and look like the hero. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting time, you know.
0: They filled up the car park, did you say, to stop people coming?
1: Uh, there was three or four cars next door with cops there while WorkSafe was in at reception waiting for me to, you know, go King Kong so they'd come in and save the day, you know. And, uh, and there was no aggression. I was just like, mate, I'm here for the kids, you know. If it was your kid, I mean, this is how disgusting it was. Even if a kid had a history of anaphylactic reaction to, to, to vaccines, you couldn't get a, a a exemption. You couldn't get it. We had people that had anaphylactic, and they said, oh, what we'll do is we'll just bring the team in uh, while you get your injection just in case you go in and anaphylactic, you know, which is basically a serious reaction. Where you, death is high on the cards. And, uh, you know, now it's all come out that these guys, half these guys that are actually putting needles on people that wouldn't give kids an exemption had exemptions themselves. How unbelievably hypocritical is that? <laughs> I mean, oh, honestly, mate, how are we not up in an uproar about what happened through that time i mean she was you know this is uh, public knowledge now we've uh, asked for a official information act on on regarding these issues and this is what's come out and now you know this lady was telling pregnant women to get you know for the do it for your father do it for your kids pregnant women to have vaccines we've got access to the documents she had and there was no information whether it was uh, it was safe for for uh pregnant woman. I mean, that alone, that's jail. That should be at least jail. You know, how many kids, you know, I run for the Royal Party and uh, we had uh, coroners on there. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but he was saying maybe we have one or two still stillborns, you know, fully, you know, fully developed stillborns a month. We went to three and four weekly, straight after the jab. You know, this is coming straight from people that are in the industry. You know, this is real, you know. And uh, for her to hear that information and to lie to the public is unforgivable.
0: And what's been the consequence for you of standing up? Are they still going for you?
1: Yeah. Oh, mate, they just what they do is they uh, try and try and bankrupt you, you know, slowly. So it's just appearance after appearance, <laughs> and obviously we've got to pay their appearance for our representation. But uh, now they've come up, with well, it's 15th and 16th of April, they've booked us in for a two-day trial. So, uh, we'll see, who knows, it's like we're living in a dual reality, you know, the the information is out now that this was an absolute farce, it was an absolute scam. But the uh, the media and the, the uh, I don't know what you call it, the top echelon of, of law and doesn't acknowledge it. They just pretend like it, all this information isn't out there and they're just carrying on like, you know, what they did was justified. I suppose they have to, right? They're the ones that implemented it. They've got to see it right through and pretend that it was justified when all the information now proves that it wasn't.
0: They've hey. either got to keep it going, haven't they, or they've got to run for cover quickly because they're going to be found, aren't they?
1: Oh, that's what I was listening to the other day. They were saying if you are waiting for doctors to come back and say, hey, we've got it wrong, you're going to be waiting a long time because they're the ones that, actually recommended this to their kids. They recommended it to their family and members. They recommended it to the community. And if they go back now and just say, hey, we got it wrong, and potentially there's some lethal side effects, they're in the can, you know? So everyone's just, stay pretending, yeah, stay in this dream world, uh, because if you don't, you're gonna, there's gonna be an uproar, and you're gonna be the brunt of it.
0: You are listening to real people in the psychotherapist chair. And today I'm talking to Steve Oliver of Oliver MMA Gyms. So here's this, here's you, here's this man who's basically spent his life learning how to manage his health, to fight, to, you know, to carry on the tradition in his family. You've got on with it. You've just been doing it. And suddenly these individuals, and I've never heard such a, a more brilliant description of your work safe uh, person walking into your gym. that. Everyone who's listening to this, they should just record that a little bit, because that to me was one of the most beautiful descriptions of the difference between someone who spent his life learning how to be a man, how to be a warrior, how to stand up. And suddenly you were confronted by this and all you did was stood up. But one of the things you didn't do, which I think is really interesting, is you didn't lose your cool. You didn't go, as you call it, King Kong. They tried to set you up to have you do that. But they didn't know about the training. They didn't know about the mental discipline of your training, the mental discipline to stand up, the mental discipline to not overreact, and also the mental discipline to face reality. Because what we're seeing now is that vast chunks of the population seem unable to face reality. And what you've done throughout your life, as you say again and again, starting with that, well, maybe not starting, but that that guy who popped both your arms in a gym in America, where you got humbled and your ego got challenged and you have this ego sense of being in reality. And you just said, I'm not playing. And now you've been put in court for that. I hope Kiwis all over New Zealand come to that on the 15th and 16th of April. I hope they come there to support common sense over insanity. I think all the psychotherapists and all the psychologists and all the counsellors should be outside that courtroom supporting you because because you're talking about sanity and that's where you and i meet right that's where my work in my life has been about helping people stay grounded be in reality and function in life yeah and we meet on this area
1: of reality the perception is not always the reality you know when i walked you know when you're in an environment where you you know your, your physical safety depends on your reality, not potentially your perception. You know, working on the door in, in, in L.A., you know I mean? Um, many scenarios where, you know, it could turn lethal and and you've got to, you know, deal with reality, not, not your perceived uh, threat levels. You know, it's just you've got to, you know, think critically. And, um, you know, the, the funny thing about WorkSafe is they're actually the institution that I go to as a business or an employee. I go to WorkSafe to... Um, to register my concerns around bullying in the work environment. You know, I'm supposed to go to these guys about bullying and you guys are the ultimate bullies, man. You know, I mean, it's it's comical, it really is.
0: And so this, uh, this led you, Steve, I think this explains to some extent how you, just a guy running a gym ends up standing for a party and standing as a representative for a party for New Zealand Loyal. You actually decided you were going to do that. Tell us a bit about that decision. That sounds like a whole new ball game for you.
1: Yeah, well, I actually stood earlier too with Billy uh, Takahika in, in the first one, you know, um, when we could see it was all going pear-shaped. You know, I mean, corruption in politics is uh, is real. I mean, you can see it, you know, look at the States. I mean, it's just an absolute, you know, it's a test case over there and, and, and just the manhunt or the witch hunt that have gone after Trump and every possible, you know, impeachment after impeachment, after Raiders house, after tax evasion, after whatever you want. It's just been, I don't think you couldn't, it wouldn't be a president or even a man in history that has been harassed and, uh, you know, just put under the spotlight like that, man. I mean, honestly, you know, and all he wants to do is put this country back, you know, make it great again. And it's, that the phrase has turned into a, a slogan for hate. Now it's just unbelievable. It really is. And and a lot of these guys that uh, you know get it wrong. They get his his agenda wrong. They see it as an evil agenda. they so disconnected from reality. I mean, these guys coming through, you know, the institutions. You know, the the universities have all been bought and paid for. I mean, Soros and all these big entities have put so much money. Into these institutions, and they're just getting them to, you know, just leading them on. These institutions, they turn these people, you know, they don't really educate them. They just they make them just smart enough to believe what they're told. You know, there's no critical thinking going on there. They just believe the the narrative that's put in front of them, and they just, I think it's past saving. I think those institutions. I think you just need to start again.
0: But you know, what you're talking about is critical thinking. What you're talking about is reality-based. And if you wanted any evidence that the pretty much you know, the, the majority of New Zealanders are no longer capable of thought, at least not thought based on reality. I think they're thinking great theories all the time, but thought based on reality, uh would be, you know, when you looked at the political parties, here are all these other parties. So when I was looking around, here are all these other parties going to keep the tax system exactly as it is. And there's Liz Gunn and you guys in New Zealand Loyal say, no, we only need 1%. We'll take a 1% transaction fee and that'll do it. We'll have more money than any government ever needs. And, and, and people vote for a 30 40% tax it's like turkeys voting for
1: Christmas, you know. But the thing is, mate, they just say, "Oh, you know, that's life." I talk, I was pumping that that uh, that policy, and people just shrug their shoulders and just say, "Oh, that's life." Tax is just man, might be your life. Doesn't have to be our life. Did you know that before World War One, New Zealand didn't pay income tax? In World War One, they implemented a one percent income tax to get the to get the country moving again after the war. 1%, after two years, they had made so much money, they dumped it. In World War Two, they implemented, uh, I think it was a 3% income tax. And that has just gone up ever since, you know. And, you know, what's gone up? I mean, you know, all of this is growing growing, in that time. is just a community of leeches at the top. You know, this bureaucracy gone mad implementing all this you know when my father was around you could do a subdivision with a ruler and a pencil on on the map and sign it off with a minimum charge now you've got a hundred page document of absolute dribble and supplemented with a you know a life-changing fee i mean You know, where's their fee going? It goes just to to the bureaucracy, to paying these guys a a substantial hourly rate so they can can put this document in front of them and just write this mind-numbing legalistic language for hundreds of pages. I don't know. I don't know whether they're conscious or they go into some semi-state or what, what they're doing when they're writing this document. And all that is is to to make us, people that are running a business, look at the document, get five pages in, go cross-eyed, throw it over the shoulder and just say, okay, I need the, I need the experts to, to, to walk me through this so we pay another fee. But isn't it, isn't it a perfect system that we pay our taxes to fund this community of bureaucracy that hangs over our head that enforces this mind-numbing agenda on us? <laughs> it's just unbelievable. They feel, you know, we pay them to do it. Well, some people have called
0: Good. it voluntary slavery, haven't they?
1: Well, did you know, back in the old days, slaves, in, in Egyptian times, you would work all day, but you'd get free housing and free food. Now, I don't know who's better off because I haven't got guaranteed roof over my head. I haven't got guaranteed food, but I work all day. You know, at least those guys were working all day and they had a bed to come to. You know what I mean? Like, who's the slave? it's it is it's it's a masterful system, but we are stupid for you know continuing on in this like this. We need to just think about it and do do something that's actually fair because it's a broken system, and it's to the point now where if you follow the system, you can't survive, yeah, you know it's a broken system if you follow the system, you can't possibly survive you you've just about gotta do something on a you know subsidy uh, income to try and survive. It's its mind-numbing. You know, I mean, it's unbelievable. But this is what's happening to small and medium businesses globally. You know, they're putting all the weight on us. You know, we're getting taxed into, uh, into extinction. Big business has got the, you know, obviously the uh, assets to, you know, to work out loopholes through the tax system. And the guys that are sitting at home are getting paid handsomely. You know, I mean, it's basically just... Communism, you know, we're we're setting ourselves up to, you know, the guys. No one works; everyone gets a UBI, and uh, you know, it's just it's not great, man. It just doesn't work.
0: I wonder in all your in all your life, what has been the most traumatic time in your life? Would you say? Would you say it's been the last few years, or have there been other traumas that you would say were greater than this?
1: Oh, different. You know, everything's. I've had, uh, you know, some challenging times in my life. And you know, my dad died early. I, you know, I was asthmatic growing up, which was quite traumatic. You know, for a kid that didn't understand what was happening, and you know, massive asthma attacks and days on end just trying to 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 not uh, smut, to be smothered to death. You know, um, it was quite traumatic. I mean, yeah, different times, different things. You know, but uh, I wouldn't allocate this last few years as anything special. It's just. It's just another phase in, in in my life, but it's unnecessary. It's an u- unnecessary, and it's a, it's been a real eye opener, you know. As far as you think the government has got your back, where it's not true at all, you know. The government's got its own back, and the, and the people are just there to pay pay the wage, pay its wage, and you know, we, we it's okay to lie to us, you know, blatantly lie, and uh, you know these people are. I have no respect for these people that are running our well you
0: know, institutions. Steve- we're kind of running out of time here. I'm going to get you back to talk about music in a bit. But, you know, when I, in the past, I always joked to people. It was a joke, by the way. I used to say when I become, you know, if anyone makes the mistake of making me Lord and Emperor of the Universe, the only thing I want to make sure is that everyone can get some decent body work each week. And that if they wanted, they can have a psychotherapy session to sort out what's going on in their head and work out what they want in their life and, and have some support around that. But I'm going to add a third feature now. If anyone makes the mistake of electing me, Lord and Emperor of the Universe, I shall keep my massage and my psychotherapy. But, you know, I'm going to add jujitsu to that. I think from what what you've said today about the power and the mental discipline and the the psychological importance of jujitsu has just blown me away today, Steve, completely blown me away.
1: Yeah, no. That, honestly, man, it's been a real asset in my life, and and it's and it should be an asset. You know, you know, a good club is just a real beautiful thing to uh, be a part of. You know, just a great community.
0: Well, thanks for sharing your life with us, Steve. I really appreciate your openness. I appreciate your courage, and I think we need a lot more. We need a lot more men who understand what it means to be a man to stand up and to say no to what is evil, to what is corrupt, and to what is fundamentally just wrong. And I think your your gym is going to be a place where people like that are going to be brought up. And I, I love what you do. I've got such respect. Just as a psychotherapist, the mental health element of what you're doing in your gym. And I think that's why I was so impressed when I heard about you staying open. And I thought, wow, you know, how can you quantify what someone does in terms of mental health and well being and relationships and community. It's very, very hard to quantify, but you've done a great deal in that. And I want to thank you uh, for all that you do and all that you've done. And above all else, I want to thank you for spending this time talking with me and sharing with other with our listeners your life and what's gone through and how you how you navigate your life. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thanks for your time, Jerry. It's been uh, been an honour, mate.
0: If Reality Check Radio enriches your day in life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives and the dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward donate.